The 25th episode of the Talk It Solutions podcast focuses on a topic that greatly impacts our climate, health, and economies, our food ecosystem, and our farming practices. Factory farming and the way that our food ecosystem is currently built is a big problem in society today, in my opinion. We waste tons of food and put a heavy toll on the climate due to outdated and poor farming practices. We treat animals terribly within factory farming, and it is, quite frankly, unethical. And it also has a direct negative impact on our health. Cultivating and taking care of our land and soil is an essential solution to improving the health of our climate and our nutrition intake as people. So what's the solution? Well, today I sit down with Riffle Farms owner Liz Riffle to chat about how regenerative farming will help save the planet, boost local economies, and give people better nutrition. In addition, we talk about how to ethically farm and harvest animals in contrast to the stress-inducing environments that factory farming puts on its animals. We also focus on nutrition and the importance of eating fresh and properly raised food instead of mass-produced food filled with additives and pesticides. I love all the new technology fighting climate change as a tech guy, especially carbon capturing. But Mother Nature does a damn good job itself when given the opportunity. And that's what we'll learn about in this episode with Liz Riffle from Riffle Farms out of West Virginia. Let's get started. It's Will Cheshire with you for another episode of the Talking Solutions podcast. And in this episode, we're kind of doing something a little bit different. We're talking with some farming, some agriculture, um, just the food ecosystem in general. It's not necessarily a startup, but it's the owner of Riffle Farms and the honest carnivore educating about great farming practices and implementing them as well. Miss Liz Riffle joining us. And Liz, thank you so much for coming on. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for getting in touch and having me with you today. Yeah, for me, it's a super interesting topic. To me, I think that this is gets overlooked all the time. I don't know why. I just think farming people just forget about it. I think being trapped in the big cities, it, we're seeing a more migration for people just moving into the big cities and it kind of detaches them a little bit from those processes and stuff of that nature as well. So I'm really excited to have you on to help educate people and kind of bring it back full full circle a little bit. So, so with that, Liz, can you just explain to me exactly what you do over at Riffle Farms, what your specialties are in, and then and we'll get into the Honest Carnivore a little bit later as well. But let's start with uh, Riffle Farms and, and what you and the family have got going on there. Yeah, totally well. So um, we raise bison actually out in West Virginia. And um, we've got a, you know, a smaller farm out there. We've got about 35 animals right now, but um, the demand's been high, which has been wonderful. So we're going to increase our herd size to about 60 animals this year. Um, and at some point we'll get to about 90 or so to, uh, to be able to, you know, get our meat out regionally. So, but we had to start somewhere, but um, yeah, so we put um, bison on the property in 2017. Actually, we started out with eight of them just to make sure we could, you know, keep them in the fences <laughs> and that that was going to go well. Um, so from eight, you know, we've grown that up to about 35 right now and calving season's coming up. So we'll get about 10 calves um, here in a month or so as well. So, but uh, yeah, we were pretty particular about bringing a sustainable meat source to our local community that wasn't beef, right? So we wanted to do something healthier than that. And that was bison for us. Um, so bison actually has less fat in it than chicken, more protein than salmon, and even more omega-3 fatty acids than even grass-fed beef. So we felt going back and having a farm in the West Virginia area, we really wanted to offer the community a healthier meat source. And bison really was 
was the source to do that. And um, as well as looking into the animal from the regenerative aspect and hoping that they would teach us a little bit more about how to use the land better. So um, bison are the original regenerative story for you know the North America region. And we were hoping to get on that bandwagon and kind of learn a few things from the animals as well. You know, I mean, we definitely did our research before bringing animals home, but we, um, we knew there was always going to be a learning curve to it. And we hoped that we could really work together with the animal to, to get that accomplished. So it's been cool. It's been fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like it's been a little bit of a journey is it as well. And I think that's so cool. Is it just kind of the start? And like you said, you start small, you build up, you see what's working, what's not working, and, and you can kind of go from there and whatnot as well. So Liz, there's so many things I want to ask you about and so many questions uh, that I can that can go on. But I think first and foremost, to just kind of set the stage uh, a little bit, you know, we want to talk a lot about the regenerative farming and what that means, why that's so impactful to the environment, why that's better for the overall farming ecosystem, things of that nature as well. I want to talk about ethical field harvesting and making sure animals are in a, a much lower stress situation than what you might see from factory farming, for example, and things of that nature and what impact that has on the quality of the food as well, which of course impacts us from a health perspective and and all those types of things. So lots of interesting things, soil health and things of that nature as well. So I think first and foremost, Liz, to set the stage a little bit, tell us what is regenerative farming and how does it work and why it's such a great solution? Yeah, totally. So um, regenerative farming is kind of the new term that's in vogue right now for um, kind of those sustainable practices, but we wanted to use a different adjective besides just sustainable because sustainable means we're sustaining the status quo and regenerative actually gets your brain thinking towards not just keeping the status quo, but making things better, you know, for the next generation or for the next year, whatever it is, um, leaving, leaving the land better than actually how you found it is really the principle of regenerative farming. So, and for us, basically, the story really began, I'm going to step back here a little bit, when my husband and I were actually active duty Navy nurses. Um, that's how we met. We traveled the country doing that for a long time. So health, it was, you know, first and foremost in our lives. Um, you are what you eat, you get what you put in type thing. So, and that's very evident, you know, when you're in a hospital or during dealing with you know, folks in an emergency room or things like that, all those chronic illnesses, things like that. Um, so yeah, so food was big for us. And so as a couple, obviously, we chose to start eating better and fresher and finding some of those local farms and starting to delve into, you know, what that means to put better products in your body. So, so from there, like I started doing that research, maybe in, I don't know, started piquing my interest in like 2013 ish read a few books. Um, but one of the books I read was Eating Animals by Jonathan Fower. And I was horrified by the factory farming system that he was laying out for, for, every, for anybody who wanted to read that, right? He's like, did you know that this is what happens to these animals that are actually on our plate? And as an animal lover, first and foremost, I grew up with horses. So, I mean, horses are like big dogs, basically, you know, like we, we love that. We had horses and dogs running around and that was our thing. And, and I always knew I wanted to get back to that type of farm or setting or whatnot. Um, not necessarily in the city. I wanted to be, you know, out in the country again. So, but reading that book, I was just floored by 
the system we have created as a nation to feed our population protein. And I was absolutely horrified and thought, I was like, you know what? I don't think I can eat meat. (laughs) And I'm a carnivore. Like I love meat. I love all kinds of meat, all kinds of cuts of meat, anything. I'll eat meat five times a day. So, so my husband, Jimmy was like, you can't, you can't become a vegetarian. And I was like, okay, okay. You're right. I probably can't do that. What we really need to do, I think, is become an answer to that problem. Like, I want to raise meat that I'm okay eating. And so tossing that around, you know, obviously became kind of a business idea, right? Like, if we were going to do it for our own family, why can't we do it for the community that we're going to be living in? And so... So doing some research from that perspective, and it just was kind of really great timing because we did um, some vacations out to Jackson Hole and Yellowstone, and that's where the buffalo still roam and things like that. And you can go into, you know, pretty much any restaurant, any steakhouse out there and get bison. You can get a bison burger or a bison steak. And and I love bison. It's got a great flavor, not fatty, doesn't like sit in your stomach sometimes how like a lot of beef does. Um, Don't get me wrong. I do love a beefsteak, but bison, I feel like is more like I can eat that more on the regular. Um, But we were kind of just having a conversation over dinner one night and I'm like, God, where are they getting all this bison meat? They're obviously not going out into Yellowstone and shooting these animals. Somebody is raising these animals. So because we started eating it more on the regular and we're like, this is really good. It's really lean. It doesn't sit in your stomach. Maybe this would be a good animal to raise, but can you really do that? And so we actually went out into town and um, talked with one of the um, owners at like the local meat shop that was right there. And we're like, where's everybody getting all this bison from? And he's like, yeah, you can raise them. Like they're not going out to Yellowstone and shooting them. (laughs) Like that's really rare. So, um, so we're like, okay. He was like, yeah, it's definitely a little bit of a different technique to do that. They are technically a wild animal and that trait does come out in them pretty often. Um, so, so we kind of looked at each other and we're like, well, maybe this is the answer. Like maybe this is where we need to be, you know, like from the farming perspective and getting our own meat and stuff. So, so kind of just really aligned and, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I got out of the military and was really looking to, you know, think about, okay, where do we want to have a farm and things like that. And, we started visiting different bison operations really throughout the country just to see what it looked like. You know, I wanted to make sure I didn't have to, you know, build Jurassic Park or something <laughs> to have bison. So, um, so we felt pretty comfortable. And in 2017, we went up to a farm and um, bought eight animals. And from there, decided to, to showcase it to the community. And it was a little slow, you know, on taking in the beginning. And they're like, well, what is this? And what does this taste like? And you know, but the more people who got curious, because it's a curious animal anyways, a lot of people have never seen a buffalo. So um, they want to come up and see the animal, right? And the more we got, the more people we would, you know, have come up for tours and stuff. And then we did tastings and demonstrations like that. And they were like, this is really good meat. So, and now I can't keep it in stock. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good problem to have. So, yeah. Yeah. So, but the other piece of that too, is that through our research and stuff, we knew that the bison were considered the original regenerative story, right? And so we saw the property that we we bought, the farm that we bought, an old cattle farm. They ran sheep every once in a while too. We looked at that from the aspect of we want to leave this 
piece of property better than how it was when we first got it. So over the next few years, we want it to look even better. We want more birds to be there, more deer. I want to have more bison, right? I want, I want all this to flourish, you know, under our care um, and be a viable business option for the next generation too, right? Because that's the big thing with farming right now is that, you know, this new generation doesn't want to get into it. They're like, heck no, I lived on the farm. I don't want to do that. You know, that's not, there's no money in that. Farms are closing all over the place. So, but this regenerative aspect gives you that opportunity to keep making the land better every year instead of just taking and taking and taking from it, right? I mean, you can only plow a piece of property for so many times before all those nutrients and minerals are out, you know, and then you start having drought problems and things like that. So it may be good for 10 years, but then you're going to have a significant decline after that. And so we want this to be something that, you know, our son could potentially later on be like, yeah, I want to do this. And it's, it looks way better than even when we got there, you know, is, is the idea. And um, we thought the bison would really help, help us out with that. And, uh, and they have, they're really good. You know, they still have that innate wildness to them. So they browse on more than just grass, right? They, they eat briars and all different kinds of things, which is kind of nice. And um, their hoof action and the way that they move as a herd is really good for the soil underneath them. So, um, so yeah, we've just been managing that and getting better at that every year. You know, we tweak little things and we see better grasses coming up and it's kind of a cool dynamic and we see more birds coming in all of a sudden and it's, uh, it's kind of cool. So. Yeah, it's it's quite literally almost your own little baby form of conservation practices, right? I mean, right there in your backyard, you kind of have a conservation area, you know. I mean, I grew up and, you know, my father is loves nature. I love nature. My brother lives and breathes it. And my sister works with, with animals and wildlife rehabilitation. So it's all for it. And, you know, even our backyard, it's like, okay, got to have the bird feed out. We got to have the garden all set. Like what type of animals are we coming in? Stuff like that. So that's really cool on that front. I want to ask you a little bit more, Liz, uh, about bison in general, like they're original uh, for, you know, all of the great regenerative practices and things of that nature as well. So you mentioned a little bit on it as well, how they kind of browse and they're still a little bit wild, but how to, how do the bison directly impact the soil? Because obviously soil health is so crucial to the nutrients and, and the things of that nature to make the grass grow. So how do they influence the soil in such a positive way? How do they contribute to the regenerative practices? Because I think that might be something that, that people aren't aware of. I mean, they don't even know you know, they've never even seen a buffalo. So let alone like, you know, how does it work on that, uh, on that type of level? When we all think of buffalo or bison, we think of them as being out west in the plains region, right? So the, the bison species is what helped make the plains what we all think of that as, right? The tall grasslands that basically went on for forever. It was just a sea of grass, right? The bison helped keep that that way. So um, basically what bison do as a species and as a, you know, a, still a wild animal, they're, they're only considered semi-domesticated. What they do is they like to stay in herds, right? That's a protection mechanism, even though they're, they're technically one of the largest, um, mammals on, on our continent. Um, but that wasn't always necessarily the case. And, um, with a pack of wolves, they can still take down a, a, a bison. So, so they would stay in very close, tight-knit groups. And kind of what that, what that mimics is basically what we do in our backyards with a lawnmower, right? We go and we mow this grass all the way down, you know, until it's only a couple inches. And so that's basically what they would do as well. So they would mow it down. 
But at the same time, they're also ingesting those seeds, right, that are, that are in whatever they're eating right there, and then fertilizing it at the same time. So they ingest the seeds, it gets fermented because they've got, you know, four different stomachs that goes through that. It comes back out in the manure, and the manure is this beautiful little patty of like perfect, perfect compost, basically. And they're, so they're eating it, they're basically composting it for you. And then with their hooves, they're stepping on that compost and putting it back into the soil. And it's like this beautiful mechanism. And it's all in this one, this one animal, like this one animal is doing all that. So, so they would have done that in, you know, a very small space, you know, there may have been, gosh, like 200 animals in just a couple acres for a day or so, and then they would move on, right? And they would keep doing that. And then the rest period, so grasses in general, have evolved you know, through that type of mechanism, because they've, they've been eaten by herbivores, that that's how they grow, right? They, they want to be cut off. And when it gets when that grass gets cut off at the top, it builds that root base, right? And then that root base sheds off underneath the soil, and builds even more soil underneath, right? Like it just feeds itself. So, and then that grass grows taller and then it gets eaten off again and it sheds its roots and it just, it keeps building its own soil base and keeping itself healthy. Um, but it needs the animal on top to clip the grass. And if there's no animal up top clipping the grasses, and if it's allowed to die, that cycle becomes a lot longer. And unfortunately, that's kind of what we've seen because a lot of places or conservationists have actually taken animals off of the the spaces thinking that that was better like they were overgrazing which is true you know if you don't manage them appropriately in a herd in a tight herd they tend to overgraze which is not good either but if they're not there at all then the grass never gets clipped it only dies once a year and then goes back into the soil and it's just a lot longer of a cycle and there's just not a lot of um like built-in resilience with that right it's just you get one shot and that's it uh, versus if there's animals on the property and they keep grazing, you've got a couple different growth cycles that you get to go through that builds resiliency into the entire cycle and the entire system. Um, so bison are really good at doing that. Bison are very good at being in one spot and then moving on. So unfortunately, cattle nowadays, they're so used to us and are used to being in fences and they've been cultivated for, Lord, I think thousands of years. And they don't really bunch up as much anymore as, you know, um, bison would. So you really have to work hard to keep that, that group as a bunch. There are definitely methods to do that with any type of livestock. Nowadays, electric fencing is like the, you know, better than sliced bread, because that's how they keep all those animals in herds. Um, but the nice thing about our bison is we have created smaller pastures now just to even keep them a little bit tighter. Um, because they do get comfortable, you know, like even, even our animals, there are no wolves around. Right. <laughs> so, so when they are in fences, they do get a little comfortable. Um, if they're not, if there's not somebody out there with them on the regular basis. So we do have smaller pastures to kind of keep them in those tight knit, knit spaces. So, but that's basically that cycle, you know, it's the animal eats the grass and poops out this beautiful, you know, compost and puts it into the soil. And then you take them off that space and let all that regrow. And you come back to it, you know, 30 or 40 days later and you have your own cycle. You know, it's not just a one shot deal, which is kind of nice. Exactly. And within that as well, Liz, we talked a lot about the soil and how, you know, the bison are great for it. Right. But 
for people that don't know, why is soil so crucial to the regenerative practices, to climate? I mean, I, what people I know that soil is can capture so much carbon in and of itself. And obviously when there's you know less moisture, it's going to be able to rise and omit, emit heat easier and things of that nature as well. So explain to, to people who, who may be wondering, okay, great. It's great for the soil. What a soil matter for, you know, why, who cares? It's soil. Why is soil so essential to combating climate change and being regenerative practices and things of that nature and, and making, you know, farming more sustainable? Yeah, totally. So that's the soil is the medium that keeps keeps all the pieces together, basically, you know, like it, it is the dough that holds everything. Um, so, and the soil has, has a nutrient base to it as well. So, but if it's exposed, that's a problem when you get dirt or cause everybody thinks of soil and they're like, Oh yeah, you know, just the dirt, the, you know, I could just put my hands down there in the soil and stuff, but you don't actually want to be able to see it, right. It needs to be covered. Um, so, because when you expose soil, then it no longer, has its, um, or it starts to lose its nutrient base, right? So it becomes exposed to the heat and the sun and that draws out all that moisture. And then sometimes it draws out, you know, different um, micro chemicals and things like that with it. Um, and then that's not in the soil to feed whatever's trying to grow in it, right? So that's the, so that's the problem. But, um, right, so the soil is the bed that holds the grasses or trees or whatever that pulls all that carbon out of the atmosphere, right? So all of those, anything green, lovely and green that is growing, you know, pulls that carbon back in. And um, the taller it is or the bigger it is, the more carbon it actually sequesters. And um, so basically it comes in through all those, you know, all those leaves and either the plant or the soil will hold on to that carbon until it's needed for another plant. So it just, it's like this carbon bed basically is what it is that's just sitting there and it holds it and until it's needed again. But the nice piece about healthy soil is it pulls the carbon out of our atmosphere for us. And so as a regenerative farmer, we're looking to pull more carbon into our system than we're releasing really. And some, you know, now the technology is just about there where we're about to be able to quantify that on a regular basis. So there's been some studies and stuff out there, you know, with some big universities and, you know, some folks have got a lot of money to, to test all that stuff. And um, it's looking good, but they're creating, you know, easier ways for farmers like me to be able to, to actually showcase how much carbon I am sequestering. Because some of the argument right now is that livestock is the problem, Right. And livestock is not the problem. The farming practice is the problem, right? I agree. If you put a bunch of cows out in the middle of California where they're only on 10 acres and there's 200 of them, there's going to be soil there, but it's all going to be exposed and nothing's going to be able to grow into it. And it's not going to be able to pull any of that carbon down at all. So just that carbon is all getting released. Um, and those animals are not actually doing the work to keep that cycle moving and going. So it's really a practice issue. It's not an animal issue. It's just how they 
how they raise their animals. Yes, exactly. And that's what I think is so important about the the education, about getting the message out there, because, you know, it's really popular. I, you know, I don't want to get political or by any means or anything like that. But, you know, you just get told one thing from from a, a media source that says, oh, this is terrible. Farming is awful. The cows are doing everything and, and they're not they're not focusing on a natural solution. I mean, Mother Nature is Mother Nature for a reason. It conquers us all because it knows what it's doing. Like you just said, with the bison example going through there and you know we're developing so much carbon capturing technology which is great i mean it can aid into it for sure but why neglect mother nature's natural process to it when you know we've destroyed the farming practices and all it takes is a little bit you know more education more work and you know the farmers can can benefit from that and then create great soil and like you just mentioned for carbon it's so important it literally just sucks it out of the air um and it's a natural process so more do it so i i guess i would kind of go forward and ask other question liz as well is when you have like kind of the, the factory farming which obviously is so big the conglomerates they buy out the local farmers and all those things of that nature as well uh, what types of challenges and what things can local farmers kind of be doing if they're listening and they're really interested in this but they're not applying these practices what are some some tips or tricks or things that they can do to make these types of changes in there and more sustainable uh, on that types of front? And then maybe from a consumer perspective, how can they support these local farmers a, a little bit more so than the big factory farming that they all hate? As, as a farmer, my biggest recommendation for any farmer is invest in some electric fencing. So a lot of people just want to put their 10 cows out on their 10 acres and just leave them there all year. That's not going to work, right? So after, you know, three to five years, you're going to be degrading your soil um, and it's never going to come back um, the way that you want it to. And you're going to have to end up putting more money into feeding these animals because your grass is not growing. When, if you put some electric fencing and kind of keep them in certain spaces for, you know, a shorter period of time and allow that rest and recovery, that is so important. Um, then you'll have this beautiful cycle. So that's my biggest thing for farmers is get some electric, electric fencing. <laughs> um, but as the consumer, the biggest thing as a consumer really is knowing your farmer, because that's the only way you're going to know where your food comes from. Honestly, um, I get it. We are busy. We are busy people, you know, and even even I have to go to the grocery store down the road sometimes to go grab something. You know, my my thing is um, my rule, I guess, when I talk to people is 80-20, right? If you can be on point 80% of the time that makes such a huge difference, you know, but I get it. Sometimes we've got kiddos and we got to go run to soccer practice and we're going to go run through the, you know, through the drive-through for Chick-fil-A or I am out of eggs and I have to bake this cake tonight. So I got to go get eggs down from the grocery store. You know, I get it. You know, that, that is how our society is set up. And so it's not one of those things that I feel like is super applicable. If you go out and tell people to just, you know, forget the grocery store, you know, end of story. And they're like, Oh my God. <laughs> and then what, you know, um, because when you know your farmer and you start, you know, getting more of your stuff from the farmer's market, you learn, you know, the seasonality maybe of some things and, and why you can't get eggs in the winter, you know, um, when chickens are being raised in a humane fashion, they don't usually lay eggs in the winter time. Um, occasionally they do, but um, so, so you start to pick up on some of those nuances and as, and as you do that more and more and find more farmers and get more comfortable being at your farmer's market, um, you know, that, that becomes embedded into your lifestyle and then it becomes easier and easier to do that. So 
Um, but my biggest thing for the consumer is go out and find a farmer's market and then start talking to your farmer <laughs> because that's where you're going to get the good stuff, right? So you're going to know exactly where that meat came from, how long it's been sitting on that shelf, potentially how best to cook it. Um, and I would also venture to guess because this is what happened to us too, is that, like I said, I'm a carnivore through and through, right? I love eating meat. Um, but we eat a lot less meat now than we ever used to because we get good, high quality meat. And I only need four ounces of meat versus, you know, six to seven ounces of meat um, to, to feel full. Um, because that's, that's the difference in, you know, meat that is not from the factory system. So because when you get into that factory system and these animals or vegetables too are out on these, on the soil that is devoid of nutrients and those nutrients all have to be, you know, put back in artificially. It's not how mother nature really worked, right? It doesn't all go back perfectly the way that she designed it. And so you're still missing out on some truly key nutrients on that, which also ends up being some, some key flavors too, you know? So if you get an egg from your local farmer versus the egg that is in the grocery store, they're going to taste different. <laughs> so Yes. Yeah. Much different. I mean, I, <laughs> man, I grew up in suburbs of the Seattle area and things of that nature as well. So, you know, back in the nineties, early two thousands, you know, organic and cage for all that type of stuff just wasn't, it just wasn't as popular, you know, and then I go over to Missouri, small town, Missouri and Farmington. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of my friends, his neighbors was a farmer and brought me fresh eggs. And I was like, wow, okay. What have I been doing this whole time? Uh, so now I, I don't buy anything that's not at least organic, right? So I think that that's really, you know, kind of an interesting standpoint because it's really great for everything. I mean, you get flavor, you get the nutrition, you get the density, the nutritional density still involved in there. It tastes better. Like you said, it's better for the environment. It's more sustainable. Uh, and then it's it's more humane, which we'll get into in a minute as well. So that's fantastic. I think, um, you know, people like Jody Frank with the culinary application and things of that nature is really help connecting farmers with consumers and how do you cook these foods and things of that nature as well. So I think that that's really, uh, really interesting on that front. So fantastic, Liz, we've covered a little bit about the farming, the regenerative practices, how it's great for, you know, the environment, why it's better for really everything in the, the ecosystem as a whole. I want to talk a little bit more about kind of your other thing that you do as part of, of Riffle Farms as well, which is the honest carnivore and something that you've mentioned a few times, which is being humane to animals. You mentioned like the cows in California, 10 acres, and there's hundreds of them. And it's just, you know, we've gotten to the point so bad that we've domesticated cows to where they've, they've lost their kind of wild in terms of ability to, to do what the bison do and, and regenerate things easier. So tell me a little bit about because this is another concern that I think people have too, is the, the treatment of the animals. So how is it that your difference between treating the animals and local farmers in general versus what factory farming does and why it's so much better in the animals, the quality of life is, is much higher? Yeah, totally. So, so, right. So there's a push for regeneration right now. And there's definitely a push for humane treatment of animals, right? We want to get eggs from chickens that have actually seen the light of day, right? And aren't cooped up in a box all the time. And uh, we want to eat meat from animals that actually eat grass, you know, and are not on just, you know, this dust bowl and sitting in their own manure all the time. So, so there's definitely a humane aspect to that. Um, and um, a big piece of it too was, you know, obviously being exposed, reading that book and hearing kind of how the slaughter process works was really 
you know, it, it's actually a big piece of the pie that a lot of people don't want to think about, which I totally understand. And they're just like, you know what, one bad day, that animal has one bad day, we're just gonna forget about it type thing. But, um, but I don't think that's good enough. You know, I um, have a really hard time with animals being trailered into a slaughterhouse and then being housed at that slaughterhouse for three days before they're, you know, they have to be slaughtered. Uh, you know, you know, walked into a room that goes into a circle that it's smaller and smaller, and then they're squeezed down and either stunned um, before they're shot or shot, you know, which unfortunately, um, we've created a system where we think stunning these animals is going to be a more appropriate measure to render them in senseless so that they can actually then be killed, right? Um, when actually, you, you should just put them down in one shot and stop trying to, you know, get an animal rendered in senseless because that, that, that's really tough. You know, they do that via electricity a lot of times. Um, and that's, that's not an exact process. It's like giving humans medications when I want to give somebody a narcotic, right. Or I want to put them to sleep. You know, that's not an exact science, you know, it's very different for every human being. And when the slaughter process has become one of those assembly line, you know, basically killing machines, unfortunately, and they want everybody to be rendered in senseless or killed the same way, but it's a different animal every single time and they don't react the same way every time. That's a tough, that, that's a tough, that's a tough business to be in. And it's interesting that we've tried to mechanize it so much. And I feel like we need to kind of step back from that because these are live animals. These are animals. They're not pieces of machine. It's not like I'm working on a car and on, a, on an assembly line, but that's kind of how they have created the system to work to feed everybody, right? So stepping back from that, um, we, uh, again, when we did the research on the bison, um, they're actually considered an exotic species, even though the bison is the national mammal for the United States. It's an exotic, <laughs> according to the USDA, um, which is fine. I'm not saying we need to change that. That is totally in my favor, because what that means is that the USDA does not regulate it very much. You know, so there's not that need for the assembly line killing and cleaning and all that type of stuff, which is great. So that means that my bison can technically they don't have to be killed in a facility like that they can be field harvested and that once I found out that bison could be field harvested that's where I ran with it I was like this is what we're doing we're we are getting our own meat animals and we are harvesting them in the privacy and the comfort of our own space their own space that they are very familiar with so that there's no stress hormone right there so because what happens when some of these animals are brought to the slaughter facility, and unfortunately, if they have to stay for days, right, that stresses them out. You know, that's not, that's not their comfort zone. So they're already in a new place. There's a lot of animals around. What's going on? They can smell blood, you know, so that kind of gets them a little worried as well. So that cortisol level and some of those other hormones in your body start going up, right? And so the theory there is that it actually taints the meat. So whether it taints the taste, that's really tough to do. They've tried to do some studies and, and whatnot on, you know, a cow that was stressed out and a cow that wasn't stressed out. And what do those ribeyes taste like? But that's a tough comparison to do. Um, so regardless, though, that meat 
has all of those hormones in it. Whether it tastes different or not, you are eating beef that has way more cortisol in it than beef that was harvested on somebody's farm. So, and I mean, days worth of cortisol sitting there in that meat, and then you ingest that. And if that's what you eat on a regular basis every day, and you're ingesting all of that extra cortisol and all those extra stress hormones, and then giving that to your kids, you know what I mean? I feel like that's part of the reason why some of us are just like completely stressed out because we've got some fast paced lives and we're also eating protein and meat that all of that stress hormone is just sitting there. So, so besides the health standpoint of it too, I'm as an animal lover, right? I'm a proponent that that's just not fair. That's just not a fair way to die, right? If I'm going to raise this animal to nourish me or my community, I feel like it is my responsibility to make that death process as honorable as possible, right? As quick, as swift, as stressless as possible. So so that is really something that we can achieve by having an animal truly in the morning. They're just out there roaming around and maybe a little bit of fog coming up in the morning and you pick out an animal and it's like when you go hunting, right? I mean, nine times out of 10, the animal has no idea you're there and it's one shot done down. So, because the other issue too, we've run into with um, animals that are only semi-domesticated like the bison, right? I always equate it to some of the experiences I had in the military, you know, like it was always amazing to me how I could get a Marine who came in from Iraq or Afghanistan and he's got gunshot wounds, you know, all through his body. And you're just like, how did you live through that? You know, but it's that stress hormone. It's that, it's that will to live and that desire to protect yourself that kind of keeps, keeps you going and keeps your body going through times when like you should basically be dead. And so unfortunately what happens to some animals when they get that stressed out, especially the bison, because they're wild, they don't go down in a shot. If they are that stressed out and that cortisol level is that high, especially for, you know, you get this big bull bison in there and you're stressing them out and he's ready for a fight type thing because he doesn't really know what's going on. Unfortunately, that animal has to be shot like three or four times before it actually is dead. That's not fun. That's not fun for an animal. It scares them, right? And that is not fun for the butcher. Like, I mean, I don't know how you hire somebody to do that on, on an everyday basis. I mean, no wonder why these slaughter facilities can't keep staff. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to render a pig in senseless multiple times before it actually dies. Like that is not, that is not human nature, right? Like we are not, <laughs> we're not killing machines, right? Like, yes, we, we have to feed ourselves, but we are not innately, you know, killing machines. And that is something that I think, unfortunately, the entire meat system has set, has set itself up for failure, you know, from that perspective. I agree hundred percent. To me, the one thing that fascinates me the most is the fact that the USDA is required and thinks that's the best way to kill an animal is like, Oh yeah, let's bring it through in. Let's bring it to a slaughterhouse, put it stressed out for three days. Let it smell the blood, let it understand what's going on. Uh, and then feed people with it as well from, I mean, the health standpoint, like you said, is not good for you at all. And from a humane standpoint, just everything, it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, the whole part of it is just not right on that front as well. So 
that is a fantastic kind of explanation, I think, regarding it as well. And I think the most important part of, of what people should kind of understand and be informed about, because these are things people don't think about, right? I, I mean, people don't think about, unless you're an outdoors person, unless you're going outdoors, if you're, unless you're a hunter, unless you're someone who is spending loads of times in nature, hiking for days at a time, like you don't understand how the, the animal ecosystem works, right? I mean, some people, animals don't just grow old and die and live peacefully. You know what I mean? Like that's just, that's, 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 that's ridiculous. That just doesn't happen. They're constantly kind of being hunted. They need to find food and they need to do things of this nature as well. So really the best way from a humane perspective, is like you said, you know, you just kind of come up and when they're not, they're not expecting it at all. And then it's one shot and it's boom and they're down. And, and that's going to be the best quality for our, ourselves as humans with the food. And then in addition, it's going to be the best for the animal as well because it's it's quick. They're not getting chased down and freaking out and then getting eaten alive. You know what I mean? They're not getting sick and not being able to walk and move and then having another animal smell them out and come up and eat them. I mean, it's it's a quick, humane process as well. And I think it's something that a lot of consumers, if they understood how it worked, would be far more comfortable. And maybe you agree with this or not, but would be far more comfortable with then eating meat as well and or then, you know, understanding the process of how it works because it truly is nature and, you know, we're animals as much as people might forget it. I mean, we are animals. So curious to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, I think that it, it really is the more you know, as if once you can get past the uncomfortableness of it uh, for some people, I think it really is makes you more in touch with who you are. Totally. It really, it really does. It's kind of um, kind of a piece I feel like we're missing sometimes when we don't connect with mother nature in that way. Um, but yeah, so basically, well, the, so like I created the honest carnivore surrounding some of this because you're right. A lot of consumers don't know what goes on behind those closed doors, but more and more people are very interested in what does go on and what it actually takes to get a steak on their table. Right. So I created the Honest Carnivore to kind of showcase that to those those interested parties. I get it. It's not for everybody. Not everybody wants to break down a carcass or watch a field harvest or anything like that. But we are finding more and more people really want that transparency. They want to know for damn sure that that meat that is on their t- their plate actually was field harvested and, you know, brought through an artisan's hands to get to their table. So we created classes to do that. We do it. We obviously do it with bison. We also do it with other local farmers in the area. So we do pigs and sheep and um, poultry and things like that. So people can really get their hands into what it actually takes to get a whole chicken on a table. You know, like um, where, where does chicken breast really come from? Like how much of that chicken are you not eating when you only buy chicken breast, you know? And um, how hard is it actually to get the tenderloin off of you know, the, that back strap of whether it's a deer or a cow or things like that. And, and um, you know, what those, those muscle structures look like, because the other piece of it too is, is yes, the transparency piece from, from the animal and humane perspective, but also it turns into the cookery side of the house too, right? So you recognize where that tenderloin comes from and that that is a muscle that is barely ever used. And that's why it's so tender and and you can just you know pop it on the grill you know back and forth and done and it's good to be eaten versus when you get a rump roast you know off of a pig or a cow and you can actually feel the muscle fibers and see the the different makeup of those muscle fibers and now you understand why it has to be braised 
or, you know, put into a crock pot or actually has to cook for, you know, eight or 16 hours for it to, to get tender. Um, so it kind of, it kind of pulls all of that back together in regards to the transparency piece of how the animal got there, but also how we cook and eat it too. Um, so that's been kind of a really fun thing to do with groups of folks who are just super interested in, you know, and how that works. And, and I feel like butchery now too, is also becoming a little bit more in vogue and, it's very artistic, most definitely. I mean, when I go in to see my butcher, you know, cut up a bison in an hour, it's like, it's amazing. I mean, all of this meat that they can find and pull and put into pretty steaks and pretty roasts and tie up and things like that. And, and then, you know, utilize all the bones for dog treats or bone broth and stuff like that. And I think one of the biggest pieces for me too, that always gets me and we always see like jaws drop when, when you go and take a hide off of an animal, right? Like, and if you have somebody who is, is very qualified to do that, they can do it in minutes. And I'm, I'm talking like this animal that actually ends up spanning like eight to 10 feet when, you know, it's hung up from the ceiling and they're sitting there with a couple knives and just go, you know, and take this big, beautiful hide off of this animal. It's pretty artistic. So, and it's really cool. And so more people are coming to, I guess, companies like us to get that hands-on experience and to see what that really takes. And so, um, so our model is basically based off of um, a national model that was actually created by Camus Davis over there in Portland, Oregon. So she started doing meat collectives out there and there's quite a few of them actually throughout the country now. Um, and so we kind of just mimicked that and saw that there was a serious need for people who wanted to get their hands dirty honestly. And it's been good so far. And it actually gives the, it gives the farmers another option for slaughter as well. Right. So now they don't have to take their pigs to the slaughterhouse. We can field harvest them and they can sell them. Right. Cause that is, that is a little bit of the, the issue, the USDA problem, right. Is if you have one of those typical animals, that's not considered exotic in order to sell it commercially, it does have to go through that slaughterhouse right? That's, that's the system. That, that's how that system works, unfortunately. And so you got to get creative and like work within the gray area there to sell that animal in a different manner. You know, now I'm selling it to you to break down instead of, you know, for somebody else to break down that's in all these pretty packages. So, um, so yeah, so it just gives other farmers other options for their animals, which has been great. Exactly. And, and I think that's important as options. And, you know, obviously the USDA has those in place for, you know, regulations to ensure that, you know, there's good practices. So that makes sense. But there needs to be a modification, in my opinion, clearly. Uh, it cannot just be, especially with all the evidence and science that's coming out about the stress hormones, the cortisol levels, the terrible humane environment, you know, there's got to be another way to where you can still regulate the meat and ensure that it's quality and there's no you know, bad tapering with it or things of that nature. But Liz, what I want to ask you as well is, is you mentioned the consumer interest. You mentioned the amount of people. I mean, I see it with, you know, some of my friends as well. I, I, you know, I, for me personally, like I know a good amount about this. So I try to educate my friends and things of that nature about, you know, the animal world, how it works, you know, all that type of good stuff. But curious from a farming perspective as well, uh, just amongst your peers and things of that nature, is the regenerative practice, is the field harvesting, are these things that are proving to be, you know, solutions to number one, you know, like our climate change problems, you know, some of our health problems as well. And then obviously, of course, from an ethical standpoint and animal behavior and humanity, 
Uh, is this something that's kind of growing within the farming community and local farmers as well in, in your uh, experience? Totally, totally growing. Yeah, because one of those things is as a consumer, once you taste a field harvested or grass fed and finished steak, whether it's a bison steak or whether it's a beef steak, it's hard to eat anything else. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it's almost to the point where it's hard to even go out to a nice restaurant and like get a burger. And I'm like, oh, well, this, this is not good. You know, like unless, unless they source locally. Right. So, um, so, so that's one of the biggest things, right? Like that usually is what turns people back to the farmer. Like they may try it and be like, oh, it's too expensive or whatever. And then, and then they go back to eating this other meat and they're like, why does this taste so different? You know? So, so it's becoming more popular because more and more people are realizing that, that, you know, the big taste difference. And then also from the farmer perspective is that the regenerative methodology is a way to keep your business going for generations. Right. And, and thus far we have found all of the other methodologies that we've used, whether it's through the government or, you know, whatever, all the other different things that they've been doing for decades in farming have not left the land as something that your sons and daughters want to inherit. They're like, nah, we're going to quit this. We're going to go to the city. See you later. So, um, so it's definitely drawing attention just because when somebody comes to my farm and they're like, oh, you've got all these animals, but like, this is beautiful. You know, like look at all the birds and stuff and you guys don't, you guys don't have to feed them grain. So there's not that input. And so that right there gets a lot of farmers and attention. They're like, oh, you don't have a grain bill? I was like, no, I don't feed grain. Like we just, we do grass and, and, and we do do hay throughout the winter. But, um, but that, that turns heads right there. So it's, it's, it's definitely super popular. And to the point now where a lot of people, you know, now there's more farmers markets and there's more of those conversations going on. I find more and more people even come to me and they ac explicitly ask me if my animals are field harvested. So, and they're, and they're looking for that meat that is field harvested. And then now that clientele too, the nice thing, the other caveat to that is you can get a field harvested animal if you buy it in quarters, at least any animal that is quartered up can be field harvested. End of story. That is anywhere in the United States. I don't care if you're a farmer. I don't care if you're a consumer. You should know that <laughs> if you buy an animal in quarters, it can always be, be field harvested. Um, and so that now is becoming a lot more in vogue too, because, you know, where my husband's from and where our farm is in West Virginia, that was always a thing. Cause there's always been a lot of farms around. And so everybody would buy half a cow or a quarter of a cow and put it in their freezer. But now people where we are, like we do farmers markets in Virginia beach or, you know, DC and things like that. And now a lot of these homes and these townhouses have big deep freezers in their in their garages and they buy half a cow or half a bison, you know, and, and that's how they're getting that good high quality meat at a really good price, actually. Cause if you buy in bulk, as we all know, when you buy in bulk, you know, there's, there's a better price to it. Um, and they're also getting field harvested meat. So, um, so yeah, it's definitely trickling, but it's coming. <laughs> so, yeah, you know what? And I feel from a human, you know, just 
being a human perspective as well, it's got to be good for the farmer to to see these interests in their work, to see their interests from outside consumers and what they do. I feel like the farmer has gotten forgotten in the U.S. Uh, over the last 50 plus years, especially, you know, I think, what is it, 90 percent? I, I, I don't don't quote me on these facts, but, you know, I know it's something along these lines. But, you know, 90 percent of farmers are, or whatever, 90 percent of farmers of the world are small farmers and, you know, family practices. But yet they only contribute or something like that, like 60 percent or something or maybe even less because the big farmers or the, you know, factory farmers come in and then that's where all the meat in, is shipped off. And that's where the majority of our food is coming from, which doesn't make any sense. And, you know, I feel like that hurts the local farmer. So to get this interest or, or to have the apps like Colonier and, and these apps that are trying to bring the consumer and farmer together for uh, whether it be like how to cook certain things, how to maximize the animal, like you mentioned earlier, and not waste a kidney, not waste a heart, not waste the brain, not waste the tongue. You know, you go to other countries, they don't waste the animal nearly as much. Exactly. You know? Tongue tacos. Yeah. Tongue tacos. Yeah. yeah. Lengua. Taco de lengua. <laughs> yes. um, yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. Big fan. So, yeah. uh, you know, I think that that whole process is wonderful as well because, you know, I think it helps bring back and, and helps them feel like what their work is is important because what their work is is one of the most important jobs in the entire world for the whole entire human ecosystem and how it works. Liz, I want to give you an opportunity, though, to talk a little bit more about how people can kind of follow the Honest Carnivore, right? Like how can people kind of get some of this information if you're listening out in the West Virginia area or in that region? You know, how could people go check out the farm and, and get a tour and see this in action? And, and how can people kind of, you know, support you and things of that nature? So for the Honest Carnivore, you can just check out our website, thehonestcarnivore.com. Um, and we've got like a list of uh, the classes that we have there upcoming. We're also on Instagram. So you can check us out, the Honest Carnivore or at the Honest Carnivore on Instagram. Um, same thing with Riffle Farms. So just our website, rifflefarms.com. You can check out what we're doing with the bison specifically. And um, we obviously host a lot of those butchery classes on our farm, but occasionally we're at different farms throughout the region as well doing the butchery stuff. Um, and then we do farm to table dinners, um, with the bison, you know, roaming in the background and stuff. So you can check that out on that page and, uh, we're on Instagram and Facebook too. So you can, you can just Google search us and we'll come up. Um, Riffle Farms Bison is, uh, probably your search word for that. But, uh, yeah, that's probably the best way to find us. Honestly, we also do farmers markets throughout the, you know, our region, we do, Farmers markets in Virginia Beach. Occasionally, we'll be in the D.C. area, um, throughout West Virginia, and um, actually this year we're going to be in Maryland as well. So our Instagram account is probably the best way to kind of keep up to date with whatever the farm's doing and whatever the Honest Carnivore is doing. Honestly, I try and be pretty good about posting <laughs> to keep people in the loop. So, um, yeah. Yeah, those are the best ways. Awesome. Yeah, really important. You can follow them. And of course, we'll have those links available for y'all listening. Uh, you can check them out on our Instagram page. And then, of course, it'll be up uh, on the website as well for opportunity to access to learn a little bit more. And it's veteran owned, which is fantastic uh, on that front. So you appreciate that and, and all that type of good stuff. And and curious, did uh, did your time, like you mentioned a little bit while you were in you know, uh, the Navy and whatnot, did that have a, an impact on, on wanting to start this company and things of that nature as well? Or was just kind of separate? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the military in general is um, you just kind of work, 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 work. So it was definitely not like, oh, I don't know, it's gonna be really hard to start my own business. That really didn't really come to my brain because I was used to working all hours all the time anyways. <laughs> and farmers typically work a lot of hours and all kinds of hours and whatever. So, um, so it was kind of nice. It was a nice transition um, that definitely helped. Um, but 
most people don't get into the military without a decent work ethic anyways. And so that just transfers into being an entrepreneur anyways, and, and a farmer in general. So, um, so yeah, very helpful. <laughs> um, we work all hours of the day. Um, but the nice thing about owning your own business though, is it's really still, it's still you making the decisions, which is nice. So, and I'm, I'm the boss. And if I'm really like, I'll do that tomorrow. I can do that tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, right. You got full control. Yeah. yeah. And if there's yeah. anything to blame, there's only yourself. So another, uh, no, it's good, good and bad in that sense. So it's really great there and forward. So yeah. Yeah. Liz, I guess the last question I would have for you, and, and you've already kind of talked about this a little bit as well, but I would be curious to see like what, if you were a consumer right now listening, what things would be super important resources they could go check out or just things that they could do to take actionable steps to really start understanding this type of process, especially if they're kind of stuck in the city, right? I mean, it might be more difficult for them to go out and, and get to know some farmers and things of that nature. So what do you think are some actionable steps people can take to be better educated? Yeah, totally. I think um, uh, a great way to start to get like your, um, your hands on, you know, what the regenerative movement is really all about would be to check out the Savory Institute. Um, so savoryinstitute.com. They're actually international. Um, Alan Savory is the one who kind of created that and spearheaded that. Um, he's based out, out of South Africa, but um, that model has really resonated, you know, with farmers over the past almost three decades now. And now, now we're really seeing it making some big impact and big difference um, because more and more farmers are utilizing that methodology. Um, but yeah, the Savory Institute is really, is, is really for me, is really the hub of all that regenerative information. And that's kind of where it all starts. And there's a beautiful TED Talk. Alan Savory does an amazing 50-minute TED Talk on basically what it's all about. Um, it's actually one of the top TED Talks ever, I think. I think it's one of the top 10 TED Talks. Um, so he does a great job. And then um, I encourage folks to look up the Good Meat Project, which is where that meat collective started. And like that's how we got started and into the butchery and the humane treatment of, of animals and where to find those farmers and potentially where to find those collectives and just the ideas behind that. Um, so those are the two spots that I would highly recommend folks to check out. So and of course the, the honest carnivore, right? You got to, uh, yes, yeah, 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 fantastic. Yeah, Follow on Instagram. Yeah. 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 Contact consulting, blogging, come, who knows come do a, a course with us. So there yeah. we go. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Liz, is there anything else that you think we may have missed or, or something that you want to add regarding, uh, you know, Riffle Farms, the Honest Carnivore or regenerative farming in general, bison, uh, field harvesting, ethical eating, whatever? Uh, what would you anything you'd like to add? Yeah, totally. I guess usually, well, the question I get is, um, so how do people get my meat? Right. Like, like, do I ship it? And I don't and I don't ship it. So we we really service our local and regional area. Um, because there are lots of other actual regenerative companies that do do that and do that very well throughout the nation. Um, Bison specifically, I think um, Wild Idea does a beautiful job and they have the capacity to ship nationwide, right? We run a lean operation. There's three of us. I'm not going to be able to pack boxes and ship it to you. So, um, but I, I do know that those places are hard to find, the ones that ship. Um, typically, if you get shipped meat to you, I do some research on where that meat is coming from. <laughs> yeah, well, so maybe if the USDA changed that. its priorities, it help out the farmer a little bit to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, that's, that's really the big thing. If you want to come see us, we love to have visitors and we do all type of agritourism events on our farm. If you ever find yourself in West Virginia, um, and, uh, from the regenerative standpoint as well, I am going to start consulting actually in about a month, I'm going to actually sit in front of a board with the Savory Institute to become an accredited professional. And, um, there are a handful of accredited professionals all over the nation. And I'm just going to, you know, be tacked on to that. So if anybody locally or really doesn't have to be locally, I guess, but, um, consulting wise, if you want to really learn about holistic management and how to make your farm regenerative and profitable, I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> there you so, go. Regenerative and profitable. Yeah. It sounds wonderful. Mm-hmm. And it's longevity as well with the regenerative practices. Keep it in the family. It's another thing that we didn't, we missed, but you know, ways to kind of get young people back involved. That's really important. So Liz, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today and really inform and educate and really lay things out in a really descriptive and efficient manner about what is regenerative farming, why it's great, the soil's impact, field harvesting, all that great stuff. I really appreciated the conversation and enjoyed our time. So thanks for hopping on. Yeah, totally. Thanks for inviting me. It was good. So. All right. That's Liz Riffle. Yeah, that's Liz Riffle. She is the owner of Riffle Farms, also part of the Honest Carnivore. If you're a farmer out there, of course, there's consulting that she's coming up with in the near future so that you can help uh, get your farm regenerative and to make money as well. Of course, everybody needs to make money. That's important on that front. If you're a consumer and you're curious and you want to learn more, go ahead, follow on Instagram, get some information, check out the Savory Institute, do a little bit of homework. Most importantly, go try to find and connect with your local farmers. It's really important. They really appreciate it. It's definitely something that is going to be uh, beneficial to them into our society as a whole, not just in the US, but across the world today as well. So go check out your local farmer, get to know them a little bit, go to the locals farmer market, check out that type of produce and products and, and make some purchases from there. And then of course, we'll have uh, information throughout the week on the Instagram page. And then of course, our new website as well. So happy to have that up for you and help you with the resources going forward and appreciate everybody listening to this episode of the Talking Solutions podcast. I know it was a little bit different and then what we usually have, the startup tech feel, but I feel like it was incredibly informative and it is a great solution on various fronts for ethical behavior for animals or ethical treatment of animals, I should say. And then of course, regenerative farming for the climate as well as our own health. Thanks for listening to the Talking Solutions podcast. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode and check out all of our guests on our website at cheshtech.com. That's C-H-E-S-H-T-E-C-H.com to learn more as we continue our mission of supporting impact-driven founders. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Talking Solutions Podcast and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Talking Solutions. If you liked this episode, I'd really appreciate a review and a recommendation to a friend as we focus on highlighting these great founders and individuals providing solutions to societal problems and bringing optimism into the world.